This recording is a service of the Allen County Public Library's audio reading service. It is specifically designed for and directed to people who have visual, physical, learning, or language challenges to reading traditional printed materials. Welcome to The Economist, offering authoritative insight and opinion on international news, politics, business, finance, science, and technology. Stay tuned for the go-to magazine for great minds around the globe, right here on your audio reading service. Welcome. This is a reading of The Economist, and I'm your reader, Mary Kiefer, with the audio reading service at the Allen County Public Library in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Today, I will be reading from the February 3rd through the 9th, 2024 edition of The Economist. And now we'll begin with the cover story, Ending the Middle East's Agony. In the months after Hamas committed the worst atrocity against Jews since the Holocaust, conflict has spread across the Middle East. In all, 10 countries are now caught up in fighting. In Gaza, Israeli soldiers and Hamas are still killing each other, even as two million people face famine. Across the border with Lebanon, Hezbollah and Israel are in a low-grade war. The Houthis in Yemen, are attacking cargo ships, aggravating a financial crisis in Egypt, and triggering retaliation by America and Britain. The killing of three GIs in Jordan on January 28th by militias in Iraq could spark a clash between America and Iran, which sponsors the axis of resistance. It is easy to despair, But there is a way out. Amid intense diplomacy led by America and Saudi Arabia, a transformative deal is taking shape. Its novelty, we have learned, is to use a proposed hostage hostage release to reset Israeli politics. To use that reset to open a path to a Palestinian state, and then to use Israel's commitment to that as the basis for a deal between it and Saudi Arabia, in which mutual recognition is underpinned by American security guarantees. Officials say the odds of a hostage deal may be 50%, and with that in place, the odds of a Saudi Israeli deal could also be 50%. The prize is far from certain, obviously, but it promises a new economic and security architecture in the Middle East. One reason for hope is that Israel may wish to pause the campaign. Many Israelis are desperate to get their hostages home, and fighting won't free them. Israel has advanced toward its military goals. Hamas has lost half its territory, half its fighters, says Israeli army, possibly a third of its tunnels and many of its leaders, but not the most senior. From now, Israel faces diminishing returns, plus an ever higher civilian toll in Gaza and corresponding harm to its reputation. Another reason for hope is that America, Egypt, the Gulf states, and Saudi Arabia also have good cause to work together. As the war has spread, all these countries have seen the full extent of Iran's malign influence. Through its regional proxies armed with drones and missiles, Iran is attempting to sow regional chaos, even as it seeks to avoid a direct war with Israel or America. All want to stop Iran's scavenger regime from emerging as the regional power, capable of threatening Israel and the Gulf and holding world trade to ransom. That would make a mockery of American deterrence. None wants to see a ruinous war pitting America and Israel against Iran. Peace is the only way out. The plan begins with the humanitarian pause brokered by America, Qatar, and Egypt. 
The first truce in November lasted just seven days. This one could endure for one or two months and free many or all of the remaining 100 or more Israeli hostages in stages. That could reset Israeli politics and help the Israeli public look beyond the horror of October 7th. America and Saudi Arabia are asking Israel to commit to a Palestinian state and prove its resolve by, for example, freezing settlements on the West Bank. The next step, our reporting reveals, involves Mohammed bin Salman, Saudi Arabia's autocrat but modernizing leader. Before October 7th, he was working on a deal that recognized Israel in return for a Saudi-American defense treaty. Indeed, one probable motive behind Hamas's assault was to sabotage his plans. Against the odds, Saudi Arabia is still striving for this vision. A deal would mark the biggest Arab commitment to peace in three decades. It would also bind in Israel and offer Palestinians a concrete commitment to statehood. In time, this could evolve into a regional American-led alliance to contain Iran. Two big obstacles stand in the way. Benjamin Netanyahu, Israel's prime minister, and Yahya Sinwar, Hamas's leader in Gaza and the terrorist architect of October 7th. Mr. Netanyahu is a lifelong skeptic about a Palestinian state. He has indulged the violent aims of extremist settlists. However, polling suggests that only 15% of Israelis think he should remain in power after the war. A long ceasefire and hostage release may create an opening for rivals. Benny Gantz, say, could free himself from the war cabinet with honor. Israel's next leader may be someone who can tell his people that the best foundation for their security is not an ending war, but strong alliances and a path to peace. President Joe Biden should speed up this transition by appealing over Mr. Netanyahu's head, just as Mr. Netanyahu has sometimes spoken over the head of American presidents. He should open an embassy in Jerusalem for the Palestinians to match the one Donald Trump opened for Israel. He should also set out how America sees the parameters for a Palestinian state and, if Israel doggedly refuses to engage, be ready to recognize one himself. What about the other obstacle, Mr. Sinwar? He is thought to be holed up beneath South Gaza with Israeli troops overhead. Although he has unleashed a catastrophe upon Gaza, he will claim a great victory simply by surviving. It is possible that Hamas's armed and most fanatical wing would emerge after a ceasefire as the dominant force in Gaza and lay claim to broader Palestinian leadership. With Iran's encouragement, Mr. Sinwar may well attack Israel, provoke reprisals, and thereby sabotage any progress toward peace. To deter such attacks and continue dismantling tunnels, Israel will retain a military presence in Gaza for some time. That will disappoint those wanting an immediate withdrawal. But Israel should be clear that if its security is guaranteed and Hamas remains out of power, then it will withdraw. Mr. Sinwar may be asked to leave Gaza for a country such as Qatar, as Yasser Arafat left Lebanon for Tunisia. He is likely to insist on staying. That would underline the value of international peacekeepers, including from Arab states, tasked with providing security in Gaza, so as to create the space for a moderate government to emerge. For that to be possible, momentum is urgently needed. The more Israel curbs its West Bank settlers and the more credibility it commits itself to a Palestinian state, the more leeway it will have to contain the rump of Hamas fighters. 
The more Arab states are willing to spend money and provide security, the more confident ordinary Israelis and Palestinians will be of change. And the more America pushes all sides, the better. Peace and stability in the Middle East will always be hard won, but the world must seize this chance because the pull toward war is unrelenting. A Charter for Change The evidence for charter schools has strengthened, just as both parties have run away from them. Improving schools is hard. Evidence of success or failure can take a decade to collect. What works in one place may flop in another. This explains why school reformers are excited about an authoritative study from Stanford University, which shows that charter schools really do help children learn. That should settle an argument over how to arrange America's schools that has been raging for 30 years. The theory underpinning charters is that schools should be freed from the bureaucracy of the public schools system and be able to hire and fire teachers based on merit. If they have these freedoms and are held accountable, then the benefits will show up in better results. That idea attracted Republican support, but it was controversial on the left. Although technocratic-minded Democrats such as Bill Clinton and Barack Obama supported charters, teachers' unions opposed them, arguing that they drew resources away from public schools. When charters succeeded, the unions said, it was only because they attracted the brightest pupils or the most motivated parents. Although fine-grained studies were encouraging, the broad evidence for charters was disappointing. In 2009, the group of Stanford published an influential study showing that their pupils did slightly worse in math and reading than students in conventional public schools. In 2013, the study was updated, and the team found that charters' pupils did better in reading and worse in math. As a result, the unions won the argument on the left. When he was running for office in 2020, Joe Biden described himself as not a charter school fan. Meanwhile, the right has turned away from charters and fixated instead on wokeness and on giving parents vouchers so that they have more choice over where their children go to school. Despite all this, charter networks have quietly expanded and experimented. Although some have failed, more have thrived. The latest study from Stanford's Center for Research on Educational Outcomes compared 1.9 million charter school students with a control sample in 2014 through 19. They found that in maths, the average charter student advanced by an extra six days each year, compared with one in a traditional public school, and by 16 days in reading. Over time, that adds up to a big difference. What is more, these averages obscure important details. Charters do much better in cities and with Hispanic and African American students. Charters in big cities advanced their pupils by almost a whole month each year in reading and maths compared with the control group. Black and Hispanic students did better on those measures by large margins compared with their peers at traditional public schools. These are the very children the Democratic Party says it especially wants to help. And the researchers rejected the notion that this was achieved by creaming off motivated students or parents. If anything, charter schools take in students who are doing worse than their classmates in public schools. The Stanford study also points to something larger. Since the Supreme Court overturned affirmative action in college admissions and firms began backing away from diversity, equity, and inclusion schemes, Democrats have become unsure about how to deal with the racial disparities they focused on in 2020. They thought the way to fix black-white achievement gaps was to attack standardized tests and gifted and talented programs. That was popular and left the underlying problem unsolved. 
America would do more to cut racial disparities by pursuing race-blind policies that focus on those who most need help. That sounds like a paradox, but it is not. Just as tax credits for poor families narrow racial disparities in income, so charter schools in cities do the same for reading and maths. Republicans should rekindle their enthusiasm for charters. Mr. Biden should tell his education secretary that he is now a fan of charter schools, and he should set about helping them flourish. Grab him by the purse. Punitive damages ought to moderate Donald Trump's speech a bit. If ordered to pay millions of dollars for defaming someone, most people would learn their lesson and zip it. Not so Donald Trump. Last May, a jury in Manhattan determined that he owed E. Jean Carroll, an advice columnist, $5 million in damage for sexually assaulting her nearly 30 years ago, and then in 2022, accusing her of making it up. Unbowed by the judgment, he called her a whack job on CNN the next day and denied ever having met her, even though they were photographed together. I have no idea who the hell she is, he protested. Mr. Trump now has a big new incentive to restrain himself, thanks to a whopping judgment on a separate but related defamation trial. On January 26th, a different jury awarded Ms. Carroll $83 million for another set of insults and denials over the assault. These ones made by Mr. Trump in 2019. Punitive damages represented four-fifths of the total, a sum clearly intended to deter the presumptive Republican nominee for president from defaming Miss Carroll again. The lawyers had asked for $24 million in compensatory damages and an unusually high punitive award. Mr. Trump called the verdict absolutely ridiculous in a social media post and vowed to appeal. The sum may well be reduced, calculating reputational harm is inherently subjective. But at least for now, the lesson appears to have sunk in. Mr. Trump made no reference to Miss Carroll after the trial. The case stems from an encounter at Bergdorf Goodman, a department store in New York in the mid-1990s. Mid-1990s. Miss Carroll alleges that while they shopped in the lingerie department, Mr. Trump pushed her against a dressing room wall and raped her. In 2019, she published a book describing publicly the attack for the first time. Mr. Trump said it never happened and accused her of trying to juice book sales, adding, she's not my type. In 2022, Miss Carroll sued him under a law that allowed sexual assault victims a one-year window to bring claims outside the statute of limitations. At last year's civil trial, a jury determined that Mr. Trump had, had sexually abused Miss Carroll, but that he had not raped her. Those findings were not being relitigated in this case. Lewis Kaplan, the judge who presided over both trials, said there would be no do-overs by disappointed litigants. Mr. Trump stayed away from the first trial, but he attended this one and testified, although for less than five minutes. Those appearances marked an effort to bring the campaign trail to the courthouse to underscore the supposed lawfare being waged against him by Democrats. Reed Hoffman, a co-founder of LinkedIn and Democratic donor, helped finance Ms. Carroll's first case. Before Mr. Trump's testimony, Judge Kaplan demanded to know exactly what he would say, lest he suggest that the attack never happened. Sure enough, when Mr. Trump called Ms. Kaplan's account false under oath. Judge Kaplan ordered it struck from the record. The defendants huffing and puffing, he stormed out during closing arguments, no doubt helped Ms. Carroll's case. You saw how he behaved through this trial, her lawyer told the jury. Rules don't apply to Donald Trump. 
Judge Kaplan also sparred with Mr. Trump's pugnacious lawyer, Alina Haba, who he warned might spend some time in the lockup. Miss Carroll will not receive the full damages while Mr. Trump is appealing against the decision, which which may take months. If he has the amount in cash, he could pay it to the court, which will hold it during the appeals process, as he did with the previous award to Miss Carroll. Or he could try to secure a loan against his other assets. Much of his money is tied up in property. Mr. Trump likes to brag about his wealth, one of the reasons the jury opted to awarding a thumping son in damages. More legal peril awaits Mr. Trump, who stands accused of 91 felonies in four criminal cases. The first, a federal trial over his election interference in 2020, was scheduled to begin in March, but it is on hold until an appellate court rules on Mr. Trump's claim of immunity from prosecution for crimes committed in office. In the meantime, he can expect an even bigger penalty in yet another civil lawsuit in New York related to his real estate business. In September, Arthur Engeron, the judge overseeing that case, agreed with prosecutors that Mr. Trump and his firm committed fraud by inflating the value of property to secure better loan terms. Letitia James, the state attorney general, wants Mr. Trump and his co-defendants to be fined $370 million and barred from serving as a corporate director in the state of New York. Judge Engeron will also have to clarify what he intended when he ordered the cancellation of corporate charters that enable the Trump organization to operate in the state. His initial ruling was unclear about whether he really meant for Mr. Trump's properties to be sold off and the business wound down. That would be a rare punishment. Only a dozen companies in the state have been subjected to it nearly in 70 years. Whatever the penalty, it will probably be paused until Mr. Trump appeals against it and the underlying fraud judgment, which will take months. All Eyes on Five Eyes Did Chinese, Indian, and Russian spies meddle in Canada's elections? Justin Trudeau, Canada's beleaguered prime minister, has had a tough few months. In September, the Liberal Party leader made the explosive allegation that India was linked to the assassination of Hardeep Singh Nijar, a Canadian citizen and Sikh separatist activist on his country's soil. India angrily denies this and diplomatic relations have soured. Now Mr. Trudeau faces another test. On January 29th, a public inquiry began probing the extent of foreign interference in the country's last two elections. If it finds that Canada, a member of the Five Eyes Intelligence Pact, has been a playground for foreign spies, Mr. Trudeau will have to answer accusations that his government failed to take threats to Canada's diplomacy, failed to take threats to Canada's democracy seriously. The probe is overseen by Marie-Josie Hogue, a judge appointed to the bench by Stephen Harper, a former conservative prime minister. The initial part of the inquiry will look at the role China, Russia, and other countries attempted to play in the elections in 2019 and 2021 that returned Mr. Trudeau to power in a minority government. Ms. Hogue has also asked to see state documents that might point to meddling in those campaigns by India. Russian and Chinese officials have thunderously denied any interference in Canada's election. India has not yet responded to the allegations. 
reporting by the Globe and Mail, a newspaper, suggests that China attempted to use a network of diplomats, spies, and proxies to invest money and political muscle to try and influence the election in 2021 in order for the liberals to win a minority mandate. The implication appears to be that a weak liberal government was more likely to serve Chinese interests than a more hawkish conservative one. An earlier official inquiry also suggested there was a well-grounded suspicion that Dan Dong, an MP in Ontario, may have unwittingly benefited from the support of the local Chinese consulate in 2019 when he won the Liberal Party's nomination. Meanwhile, Michael Chong, a conservative MP, is thought to have been targeted by China, along with his family in Hong Kong, after condemning China's treatment of Uyghurs. Security officials say few should be surprised that there are foreign spies in Canada. The country's generous immigration policies have created large diaspora populations. Canada's proximity to the United States also makes it an attractive stomping ground for spooks. The two countries' armed forces work closely together. You can spy here and get intelligence benefits from the United States, says Ward Elcock, a former director of Canada's intelligence services. The inquiry's final report is due before the end of the year. Suffering Herds, Cows in India The Hindu rights pro-cow policies are terrible for India's cows. The Indian government is not terribly keen on counting people. The country's census, conducted every 10 years between 1881 and 2011, was postponed in 2021 owing to the COVID-19 pandemic. It has yet to be rescheduled. Counting cows for the ruling party, Bharatiya Janata Party, BJP, is a different matter. The BJP government of the big northern state of Uttar Pradesh, UP, home to an estimated 240 million people and perhaps 20 million cattle, is conducting a new bovine census. The point of this, says the government, is better cow protection. The effort highlights a glaring cow-related contradiction in the BJP's Hindu nationalist ideology. The party says it wants to protect cows, which are associated with divine beneficence and venerated by Hindus. Yet its pro-cow policies, including bans on cow slaughter, appear to be detrimental to cattle welfare. They are thought to be causing an increase in stray cows, typically male calves and aged milkers, which, having little commercial value, are let loose by their owners. Abandoned, they feed on plastic bags and other rubbish, causing car crashes and raid farmers' crops. There were an estimated 5 million stray cattle in India in 2019, including 1.2 million in UP. The government reckons the number has since increased. Stray cattle have been long a menace in India, given the Hindu taboo on cow slaughter. Anti-slaughter laws, such as the one introduced by the UP government in 2017, have further reduced the options for farmers to dispose of unwanted animals. Almost all of India's 28 states now have laws banning cow slaughter, many of which have grown stricter in recent years. So has the taboo, thanks to thuggish Hindu activists, so-called cow vigilantes, who attack traders, particularly Muslims, whom they suspect of transporting cattle. They operate largely with impunity and in some states alongside the police. To mitigate the problem in UP, its BJP government, which has been in power since 2017, promised to care for aging livestock. 
the government set up its own shelters and doled out subsidies in private ones. At a shelter in Noida, a city in UP across the Yamuna River from Delhi, around 160 cows are housed in a crowded neighborhood beside a busy road. The men who run it say they are using time off from their jobs as real estate agents and bank clerks to serve Mother Cow. As leaders of the local branch of the Barjrang Dal, a militant Hindu group, they also have non-bovine interests. They scan the neighborhood for signs of love jihad, a conspiracy theory that alleges Muslim men seduce Hindu girls in order to convert them and produce Muslim children. Land jihad, alleged attempts by Muslims to take over Hindu-owned land and Christian missionaries. They claim to press local police to prosecute such crimes. If the census finds, as is expected, that the number of stray cows has grown, operations like the one in Noida are sure to proliferate. That will be another boost to the Hindu right. It might not do much for UP's legions of famished cows. Unsanctioned Behavior Asia's undermining of sanctions against Russia carries lessons for the future. Following Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine two years ago, more than three dozen countries led by the West slapped economic sanctions on Russia. They were unprecedented in their scope for a target of its size, covering energy and other commodities, finance, technology, travel, shipping, and more. Their aim was to raise the cost to Russia of continuing the war. The reorganization of trade that has followed highlights the relentless eastward shift in the world's economic center of gravity. Asia's, uh, Asia accounts for two-fifths of the world's GDP. Its ever-increasing commercial pull is diverting much trade that Russia previously conducted with the West, undermining sanctions. That is despite the fact that three of the six Asian countries which have joined the sanctions, Japan, Australia, and South Korea, number among the region's five biggest economies. America should bear this in mind if it ever considers slapping similar sanctions on China. Of course, China itself, under Mr. Putin's pal Xi Jinping, has done the most to undermine the West's sanctions. Trade between Russia and China jumped by 29% in 2022 and probably by more last year. China and Hong Kong are now Russia's chief suppliers of microchips frustrating Western efforts to starve Russia of the integrated circuits essential to the war effort. China has also swiftly become the top supplier to Russia of cars and smartphones. Chinese support is far from the only factor, however. The Insider, an online newspaper, recently revealed how Russian military enterprises are getting hold of sophisticated machine tools from Taiwan, despite sweeping sanctions there. Middlemen in Turkey and elsewhere are sourcing what Russia needs. In Central Asia, Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan are key conduits for shady parallel imports into Russia. Their trade with neighboring Russia has boomed. From the start, sanctions had to be designed around Asia's apathy. The alternative was for the West to compel its involvement by imposing massive and indiscriminate secondary sanctions, that is, measures targeting third parties who help Russia. But Asia is too important, economically and geopolitically, for the West to issue such threats. Another important example is oil. On the eve of the invasion, Europe bought three-fifths of Russia's oil exports. That has fallen sharply because Europe has banned those that come via sea. Russia's oil exports to Asia, meanwhile, have leapt to more than half its total, with India the biggest buyer. 
Singapore is one odd case. It condemned Russia's aggression and was the only member of ASEAN to sanction Russia. Oil, though, is not covered. Singapore is refining and oil trading giant, as well as the world's busiest bunkering port. In the year to May 2023, its imports of Russian oil nearly doubled. Demand for storage has also risen, suggesting that Russian oil products are being blended and sold on as non-Russian oil with a juicy markup. In part, Asia's appetite for Russian oil is helpful to the West. America and Europe have tried to use their control of maritime insurance and vessels to cap the price of Russian oil while ensuring it still flows, thereby avoiding a global supply crunch that would hurt their own consumers. Yet Russia's sales to Asia also highlight that even if the West had wanted to stop Russia's oil exports, it could not have done exports, it could not have done so. The price cap is leaky, too, because a shadow fleet accounting for roughly 10% of all tankers ignores it. Today, Russia earns more from oil exports than before the invasion. Now the speculation in Asia is about how much America might ratchet up secondary sanctions aimed at Asian entities deemed to be supporting Russia's war economy. In December, President Joe Biden issued an extensive an executive order derailing secondary measures against foreign firms and banks. Asian banks appear keen to be seen as compliant. Even if the West successfully uses secondary sanctions to coerce Asian countries, says Nicholas Mulder, a sanctions scholar at Cornell University, the long-term risk that economic warfare undermines both the primacy of the dollar-based financial system and America's influence in Asia. If America is having this much trouble getting Asians to support a sanctions regime against, uh, for them, relatively unimportant countries such as Russia, think how much more trouble it would have with China's neighbors should it ever attempt to impose a similar regime on the region's military and economic colossus. Hunger Returns Northern Ethiopia, ravaged by war, now faces drought. Bullet holes riddle the door and walls of Tedessa's grain shop in Yechila, a small town in the northern Ethiopian region of Tigray. During the recent civil war, Ethiopian and Etrian soldiers looted his stores and emptied his cash box. Now peace has returned, but buyers have not. He scoops up a handful of maize and lets it slide through his fingers. People cannot afford to even to buy this much, he explains. From 2020 until 2022, war raged across northern Ethiopia, pitting Tigrayan forces against the Ethiopian and Etrian armies and regional militias. A land pillaged by soldiers is now parched by drought. Some farmers have harvested enough to last for a few months, others nothing at all. The next main harvest is still eight months away. Viewed from the crumbling hillsides, the barren terrain has the same sepia tint as an old photograph. On the maps drawn by aid workers, it it is colored in shades of red. So I'm looking at the map, and that's about five-eighths of Ethiopia. The Famine Early Warning Systems Network, which is funded by the American government, predicts that most of Tigray will experience emergency levels of hunger in the coming months, one notch below famine. The recent harvest was barely a third as big as expected. 
The situation is just as bad in parts of the neighboring Afar and Amhara regions, which also saw fighting, and in southern grazing areas. Nearly 16 million Ethiopians are short of food. The rains are always fickle in the northern highlands, especially in years when the El Nino weather pattern appears. But marauding armies have robbed farmers of their assets and disrupted the economic networks that might once have kept hunger at bay. When Etrian soldiers first arrived in Yachilla, they nabbed livestock so that they could eat, says an official. Then they killed the remaining animals so the locals would starve. Farmers talk of soldiers burning plows, stealing sickles, and slaughtering oxen. The federal government and its allies obstructed aid deliveries, cut electricity, and blocked banking transactions. A U.N. inquiry found that starvation was used as a weapon of war. Although most services are now restored, a million people in Tigray are unable to return to their homes, still occupied by forces from Amhara or Etria. Gebri Mariam sleeps in a school classroom in Wukro town after fleeing from western Tigray, which is claimed by Amhara. Many young people died, and we were not allowed to bury them, she says. Etrian soldiers kidnapped one of her adult sons, who has not been seen since. Another escaped to Sudan. Her jewelry was taken at knife point by Amhara militiamen. She gets by on sporadic handouts of wheat and on the generosity of the local town folk, which is starting to wear thin. A survey last year found that 30% of displaced children under five were acutely malnourished. In normal times, young people could follow the rains, finding seasonal farm work in the fertile lowlands of the West, where Gebri Marion once lived. That is no longer an option. Migration to the Afar region has also dried up. Kiffel, we have withheld full names of all those interviewed to protect them. A Tigrayan day laborer fled afar during bitter fighting and dares not return. The landowners in his town home village are no longer hiring farmhands, so he has sold all his sheep to buy food. Hunger may be the most severe in parts of Amhara, where 1.7 million people are affected by the drought. The situation there is made worse by continuing war as the Ethiopian army battles a regional militia. Armed groups have attacked food trucks, and some areas are hard for aid workers to reach. Parts of the region has already been devastated by Tigrayan forces in the war. Elders in the worst-hit areas of the north draw comparisons with the catastrophe of 1983-85 through when hundreds of thousands starved to death. So does the regional administration in Tigray, which warms of an unfolding famine and estimates that thousands have already died of hunger-related causes. The federal government considers such claims alarmist. Aid workers avoid the F-word as they coyly refer to famine and think the number of deaths is overstated. Rainfall data indicate that this drought is not as extensive as in the worst historical episodes, but just as severe in places. The true picture is hard to establish because the federal government has not allowed an integrated food security phase classification, the gold standard analysis, since it disagreed with the conclusions of the previous one in 2021. It is clear in any event that more people will die if sufficient help does not arrive soon. The government's well-regarded productive safety net program, which gives cash, food, and work to about 8 million needy people across the country, used to provide around a quarter of the 
calorific needs in the areas now blighted by drought, but it is so underfunded that transfers will stop entirely for two months this year. International aid has also faltered. Last year, the UN's World Food Program and the American government suspended food handouts for eight months in Tigray and six months nationwide after uncovering what an American official describes as multiple concurrent schemes to divert humanitarian assistance away from its intended beneficiaries. Food aid was being stolen all over the country to feed soldiers or be sold for profit. Distribution has slowly resumed since December at lower levels than before. Aid agencies and the government gave food to 6.5 million people in January. It is not enough. In the hills near Atsby in eastern Tigray, Mellis is trying to feed his two cows on the thin grass beside a dry watering hole. Then he will sell them for whatever price he can get. During the war, attrition soldiers killed and raped people here, camping for months at the village school. It is as though he says the drought has come to finish off the work the soldiers started. Ground control to Major Musk Satellite internet is good now, but a billionaire controls much of it. Information is not just sent through cables. It is also sent through air and space, adding resilience when wires fail and reaching places that are otherwise isolated. For the hard-to-connect world, satellites can be the solution. Elon Musk's Starlink has 5,288 satellites in orbit, with several thousand more approved for launch by 2031. Mr. Musk has said he wants 42,000 satellites. The company claims more than 2 million users. Jeff Bezos' Amazon plans to launch 3,226 satellites with Project Cooper. OneWeb, a British company, has almost 650 satellites in orbit. More are coming as countries like China seek their own capacity. Satellites in low Earth orbit, LEO, a few hundred kilometers away from Earth's surface, offer much faster and more reliable connections than satellite connections of old, good enough to stream Netflix in one's mountain cabin, though not lightning quick like fiber optic cable. But satellites in such orbits move across the sky very quickly from the point of view of an earthbound user, zipping in and out of range of receivers on the ground. This means LEO satellite systems require antennae, which can track satellites as they pass overhead, recognizing when one is moving out of range and identifying and switching to another satellite that has come into the picture. Software must repeatedly facilitate these handoffs such that the user never perceives a drop in service. Satellite surface service is not yet cheap. For access in poor, isolated communities, subsidies are required. That could change as eccentric billionaires with proclivities for rockets and space keep launching more and more satellites. This redundancy will be important should the wired system come under stress from climate change or from politics and war. Heavy Israeli bombardment caused widespread internet blackouts in Gaza. Ukraine's army has used Starlink in its war with Russia. But wars have also raised questions of what happens when one man, with his own business interests, controls Internet access. In Ukraine, Mr. Musk has been accused of exercising a veto over operations that he felt might escalate the war. In Taiwan, some worry about Mr. Musk's significant Tesla business in China. If China were to attack Taiwan, starting a war that might well involve America, would Mr. Musk um, allow Taiwan access to Starlink? All of a sudden, the abstract question of who owns the Internet would become a concrete geopolitical crisis. 
The Knights of Malta, still sovereign, an ancient global order gathers in the Eternal City. It was enough to captivate any conspiracy theorist in the grounds of an 18th century Roman villa, more than 100 well-connected men and women from around the world, many of them aristocrats, came together to discuss their common mission. The meeting, from January 25th through the 27th, brought together the ambassadors of perhaps the oddest entity in international law, the Sovereign Military Order of Malta. Once the Crusaders' medical corps, the order later ruled Malta for more than 250 years. Driven out by Napoleon in 1798, its knights and later dames retained that intangible yet priceless asset, sovereignty. That sets the order not only may that lets the order not only maintain diplomatic relations with other states, but also issue stamps, coins, passports, and car number plates. Its Grand Master is entitled to be addressed as Your Highness, and what little territory he rules, a villa on the Aventine Hill in Rome, and a mansion near the Spanish Steps, is not part of Italy. The Italian soldiers and police guarding the ambassador's powwow stayed outside the villa's gate. Today, the order is essentially a Catholic humanitarian NGO, and a very big one, with 13,500 knights and dames, almost 100,000 volunteers, and more than 50,000 professional staff who care for the victims of natural disasters, wars, epidemics, and poverty. In a room decorated with the coat of arms of scores of past dignitaries of the order, Ricardo Paterno di Montecupo, its grand chancellor, similar to a prime minister, says its members do not proselytize. But he adds, if our work touches the heart of someone, well, we are very happy. The order also runs permanent structures, notably the Holy Family Maternity Hospital in Bethlehem. It has no diplomatic relations with Israel, but perhaps ironically, in the land of the Crusades, it maintains an ambassador to Palestine, an American, Michelle Burke Bow. Like many other humanitarian outfits, it has been unable to gain access to the Gaza Strip but as soon as the occasion presents itself, we'll be in Gaza, says Miss Burke Bow. We have time for a letter to the editor from Elaine Deckers, who lives in Brussels. You set out arguments against South Africa's case accusing Israel of genocide, but you did not tackle one large question regarding intent. What does the Israeli government want to happen to Palestinians when it finishes its war in Gaza? Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister, has rejected a Palestinian state. Offering Israeli citizenship to the Palestinians is not likely because they would then have the same rights as Israelis to lease land and could claim protection against harassment and the confiscation of their land by other Israeli citizens. If Israel occupied Gaza, it would be responsible for rebuilding the territory, paying for food, medicine, shelter, education, and so on. Either full citizenship or full implementation of the responsibilities an occupying state would require great generosity on the part of the Israeli government. Or is it the unsated hope of the government that, in the name of humanitarian concerns, the Palestinians in Gaza and the occupied territories should be voluntarily removed to other countries? This would appear to be a breach of Article 2 of the Genocide Convention, which forbids deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in part or in whole. And I was in error. That was written by Jane Simpson from Canberra. That's all the time we have for today. This has been Mary Kiefer with a reading of The Economist. I hope you've enjoyed today's reading from the audio reading service of the Allen County Public Library in Fort Wayne, Indiana.